continuing going through the, the Minor Prophets. So we're in the, the third book of the series, looking at the, the book of Amos. Uh, overall, nine chapters, so there's a, a lot that's in there. So I'll end up going through some of the kind of the, the major themes that, that is going on, connecting those together. So I'll be pulling out a, a few different verses, which I'll, I'll have some up on, uh, some slides up there, just to help follow along a little bit to, to stick with me. Um, so the book of Amos, the overview, it's a lot of judgment. A lot of judgment and God pointing out the seriousness of our sins. But what we'll also see is as the custom with God is there's going to be a lot of grace and there's going to be, and there's going to be hope. And so that's the, kind of the overview of what, what we're getting into is this judgment, but then this grace and hope that abounds. A little bit about the book itself. Uh, so it was written about 750 BC. So what that means in terms of the, the context is the, the Assyrian Empire, which had been very great and powerful, was having kind of a, a lull in their kingdom. Uh, so what that means is that Israel had a time where they had a little less pressure and a little more prosperity. But what they're heading towards that they don't realize is that about 30 to 40 years after Amos prophesies there is that they, Israel is going to be so suppressed by, by the Assyrian empires that they will not even have a nation anymore. So the nation of Israel will cease to exist about 30 to 40 years after this. But we'll see in terms of how they're acting, they have absolutely no idea that that is coming. So as I mentioned, there is the great deal of prosperity. And that's part of what's going to be clouding their judgment when we look at the Israelites is this idea that because they currently have this stable government, because they have all of this, this wealth and prosperity that is starting to come their way, that, that they're feeling like God is just blessing them because, well, they're God's chosen people, and so they get to be blessed. And so while they're getting these riches and they're accumulating them, at the same time, what we're going to see is that they're also neglecting the needy and they're neglecting the poor, but they end up justifying their actions based on the fact that they are saying and seeing all of this wealth as a blessing from God because of being the chosen people and ignoring the fact that they're exploiting the poor in order to get it. So the Israelites, as we've heard about the day of the Lord from some of the previous sermons, so the Israelites were looking forward to this day of the Lord, meaning that they, they're looking forward to when, when God comes to, to judge, and in their mind, to judge the other nations, and they're looking forward to when they get to be blessed, and they're, they're looking towards this day of the Lord where they're going to get more wealth, and they're going to be exalted, and that God is going to put their enemies underneath them. And anytime you start thinking, and you're ready for God to exalt you, uh, you got to have to get ready, because that means God's about to humble you. So God sends Amos to, to show, to put his light of truth on the matter for the Israelites, especially on their pride and their indifference towards the Lord and the poor. So these are matters that God does not take lightly in this book. He's going to speak loudly, and he's going to speak boldly. In Amos 1-2, he says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So the imagery here would have been understood as the, the roar of a lion. So that's what Amos is comparing God's word to. It's the roar of a lion. And I, I don't know if you've 
ever had the opportunity to hear a lion roar, and it's not something very common or that many of us would come across, my wife and I did have the experience to do that. In, it was in a zoo, but it was still pretty awesome. So we're at the Fort Worth Zoo, where it's an open exhibit, other than the, the trench that protects you from getting eaten, which is, I, I appreciate that. But we're standing there, and everyone's just kind of talking, look at the lions, oh, they look pretty cool. And then the male lion stands up and just roars. And it was, it was something that I have never forgotten, and was just absolutely blown away. Like, you can't even describe the sound and even the feeling, because it is so deep and loud that you can feel the roar. And what they say, the lion's roar can go for five miles, which is pretty significant, especially when you are standing next to it. And what happened when he roared, literally everything went still. I mean, I think the the antelope behind us started to run. But all of us went still. Everything went silent. Conversations ended. And then we just stood there kind of wide-eyed and then looked at each other. Like, oh, did you hear that? Like, yes, I heard that. But then even throughout the day, we were asking everybody, like, were you here when that happened? Oh, man, you missed it. It was so amazing. Let me tell you about this. And like, even, I mean, even still, even now, we're talking about the roar of this lion because it was just so magnificent and so incredible. I mean, it was majestic. It was beautiful. It really was. But at the same time, the roar of the lion is also frightening. It is also very frightening. We, you know, we weren't as scared because we're, we're in the zoo and we trust that they're going to protect us. But in, in Israel, where Amos is, the lion is something to be feared. So the two examples in 3-4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Meaning the lion roars when he's hungry and he's on the hunt. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? So Amos is, is calling out the Israelites, the lion, your God, is roaring. Are you not afraid? Do you not hear what he is saying? You need to listen closely and you need to take this to heart. That's what Amos is trying to tell them, the roar of God. And so that's what we want to be mindful of too as we go through this book, is making sure that, that we are listening to the roar of God. When he teaches us, when he talks to us in here, recognizing that our God is not a tame lion. He does not take sin lightly. So the book of Amos now is going to be directed at this roar and the pride, directing it at the pride of the Israelites who were God's chosen people. So the Israelites, they had become spiritually lazy and were going through the motions of religion, but at the same time holding on to their sins. They're trying to appease God on one hand with their worship, but then still trying to live according to their own ways and their own desires on the other hand. And so because of this, they faced severe judgment because they were refusing to listen to this roar. They were refusing to return to God. So let's make sure that that's not going to be us, that we listen to this roar and we, he- we heed God's call. So get more, as we get more into the message now that, that Amos is delivering, it's going to focus on uh, really the, the, the call of God, it's kind of the, the overview, it's going to focus on the call of God, and then the sins of the people, so our sin, and then it's going to get into God's judgment, and then God's grace. So that's kind of the overview of what, what we see. God's call, our sin, 
God's judgment, God's grace. So looking at the call of God first, it helps us to have a little bit of background on Amos. So the book identifies Amos in the beginning as a shepherd from Tekoa. And he's from Judah, so that's from, a, it's, it's from the, the southern kingdom. So there's Israel and there's Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom, Judah the southern kingdom. So they're both God's people, but the kingdoms, ha- kingdoms have been divided. So you've got this guy, this shepherd, this farmer coming up from the south into a different nation and then calling out their people. So you can just imagine like some outsider comes in and to them, this outsider also had no political ties. He had no... Uh, prophetic training, because they had professional prophets who did that for a living. Amos was not one of them. So like, who's this guy from down south just coming up and yelling at us about everything? So you can imagine they didn't take it very well. So they didn't take it very well, which is why, uh, I mean, even, even in parts of it, Amos ends up, <laughs> they end up telling him to go away. Like, they tell him to go, go flee away. But what Amos tells them here, I have the verse up here, what Amos tells them is the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So to Amos, it didn't matter what his profession was. It didn't matter what his family ties were or how well the people would even receive his message. All that mattered to him was that the Lord told him to go speak his message, so he did. So that's what we see in the verse, go prophesy. So, hear the word. He just says, go speak, and so Amos says, that's what I'm going to do. God said, go speak, therefore you're going to hear me speak. So it's a good example of us for this obedience to God. Obedience stirred by his faith and by his passion for what is right. If the Lord calls you, It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your qualifications are. Too often we paralyze ourselves in fear, deeming ourselves unqualified for ministry because we don't have the training for it or we're not confident in our knowledge or maybe we just feel too uncomfortable. And although these may prevent or they may present difficulties at times, we know they are not an excuse for idleness. Jesus called us to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He didn't tell us to go when we feel ready, go once you're trained, go once you're competent enough. He doesn't say that. He just says, go. That's often, anyway, in our weaknesses that he's going to show his strength. So another verse from 1 Corinthians where God says, Consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God." I love how how humbling yet empowering this is. It's very humbling. You kind of think like if someone came up to you and was like, hey, you're not very wise. You're not very strong either. You're not much of anything really. Like, okay, I like where this is going. So someone comes up and says that to you, it doesn't seem like the compliment. But what God is saying is, no, that's, that's who he wants. He wants the humble. He wants those who are 
made low. And that's how he's going to show his strength, which is humbling because, I mean, we, we admit weaknesses. We admit where we're, and we just don't measure up in terms of worldly standards, as this says. But what it does is it gives us confidence that God can still use us. That even though I might be weak, and I can tell you that I mean, there's a lot of times in my life where I say, like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I'm not good enough for this, or I'm not smart enough for this. Like, I don't, can God really use me in this? And the answer is yes. Yes, he, he can. And he might be able to use you more than if you were proud and arrogant in any of your ways. So it's humbling, yet empowering, knowing that in those weaknesses that God is going to show his strength through us. And what we end up realizing is that in the end, our usefulness is not dependent on our own qualifications anyway, but they're dependent on God's qualifications. So like Amos, when God calls you to go, you go. When God calls you to speak, you speak. And Amos is going to speak God's word in a powerful way, and he's going to absolutely rip these people for their sins, which is what we're going to look at more in depth now. First, I'm going to look a little bit at the, the who of the sins, meaning who is God speaking to, and then I'll break down a little bit of the, the what of the sins, what they were doing. So with the who, in chapter 1, the first verse, and the first, plus the first verse of chapter 2, God is indicting the neighboring nations. So he's talking to Israel, but he starts off by calling out all the neighboring nations first. So he highlights six pagan nations who do not ascribe to or know the God of Israel. Yet God is still going to hold them accountable. I've got one of the examples up there, but there's a few other ones with the different nations. There's too many to put up. But we're seeing that these, these nations, they, not only are they not following God, but they legitimately, very possibly, don't know God at all. But what we see is that that does not excuse them from God's judgment still. And what we see also is what's notable is they might not have known God, but God also doesn't indict them on the fact of idleness or on um, pursuing idols and false worship. The only things that he talks to them about is not breaking commands. He talks to them about the way they have mistreated other people. The whole indictment on the pagan nations is on their treatment of other people. God's compassion for people is high. It's of very high importance to him. And even though these nations might not have heard the laws of God, what we know is that God would have given them enough of a conscience that they knew right from wrong. They knew the right way to treat fellow human beings. And so God can justly hold them accountable for their mistreatment of others. And that's what one of the, the verse I have up there, part I've highlighted, they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So they knew the right way to treat one another, and they chose not to do that. And so they were subject to God's wrath as well. So after those, those six, God then turns to Judah, so the southern kingdom of God's people. So with Judah, one of the things that's interesting is the way that, that the words are styled is the exact same as the pagan nations. So he styles it and he words it and he says it in the same way as he's addressing just any of the other pagan countries who are not following God. Kind of pointing out this fact that Yes, you are part of God's chosen people, but if you are going to reject the laws of the Lord, you are no different than any of the pagan nations. There's no special privileges that you are getting 
you are rejecting me, and therefore you will be treated as one who rejects me. And so that should be, for the nation of Judah, that itself is going to be a little bit of an eye-opener for them. So one of the other things that this helps to point out is that even though they are God's people, they still deserve God's judgment. Because that was part of the, the thought that, that God's people had, was that because they were God's chosen people, because they were the blessed ones, in a sense, that they felt that they had this entitlement and that they would be above the judgment. But in the end, what we learn is that that's not true. We are deserving. So even for us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as disciples of Jesus, we are still deserving of God's judgment. And we know that we are safe from his judgment because of Jesus Christ, but we are still guilty. We are still deserving of the judgment just like the rest. It's only through Jesus that we are saved. And the fact that he took on our judgment on the cross and then took the penalty for the sins that we deserve. We're not better than non-believers. We've done nothing special to gain God's favor. We are all guilty and all deserve the same fate. It's eternity separated from God in hell. So we can praise God that he sent Jesus. We can praise him that he rescued us and made a way for us to save us from our own destruction. So in the next part, in 2b, and then really for the, for the seven chapters that follow, God is now going to focus on Israel. So focus on Israel, and one of the cool things with the neighboring nations when he was calling them out, if you map it out, the first three form a, a larger circle, and then the next three form a smaller circle, and then in the middle is Israel. So he's zeroing in on Israel with the nations that he has been talking about. It's kind of that, that bullseye saying, okay, now it's time for the focus. We're, we're about to get after it. So for Israel, because, because of their, uh, their state as, as God's chosen people, they expected to be blessed. Ex- they, had, they had expected all of this judgment for their, their neighboring nations and how God was going to bring them low. And they're like, all right, yeah, that's good stuff. But now God gets to them. And they're thinking, all right, let's hear, let's hear the blessings. Let's see what God's going to do. What else is he going to give us? But what instead ensues is a verbal thrashing from the Lord. And Amos is just going to unleash on them. God will cite close to three times as many transgressions for Israel than he does for all of the other nations he just talked about combined. So if you count up all of the indictments on all the nations and what they were doing, Israel's is three times greater than all of the others combined. So for them, it's going to be a complete shock and probably offensive to most Israelites. As I'd mentioned before, oh, back one, they t- told God to go flee away for the fact that like, you, you don't prophesy against Israel. You don't do that. Go away and do this in, in your own country. So they're try- trying to tell him to get out of there because they don't like hearing about this judgment. And, and really, in the end, I mean, it's, it's hard to hear truth sometimes. The truth can be hard to take, and Israel, for them, hearing that they are no better than their neighbors, but instead are actually more worthy of condemnation because they had received and they knew God's laws. They had seen his might. They had been rescued by God, yet they're still rejecting him. 
Amos speaks of a multitude of offenses. Overarching sin problem, though, is their pride, which we're going to focus in on the two ways the pride got manifested. One, in the way that they are exploiting the poor, and then two, in their practicing of empty worship. So we're going to look at those two in a little more depth. So multiple times throughout the next few chapters, Amos cites offenses for Israel's lack of compassion for the poor and for the afflicted. To give you a few ideas, I'll highlight a few verses. In 3, 6, and 7, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. 4.1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. 5.11. You trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him. And 5.12. You who afflict the righteous and take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. So the Israelites had turned their hearts from God and had given in to this self-centeredness and indulgence. They knew God's law. They knew what was right. But instead, they pursued the riches of the world, turning away from their God and turning away from those who were in need. The rich of the land got richer by taking more from the poor. They turned away from the needs of the afflicted. They took bribes, it said. They even manipulated the justice system so that they could benefit and get more, and the poor were basically had no one, no one to help and no one to, to take a stance for them with this injustice. The Israelites were completely forsaking justice for their greed. The injustice of the land was great, and even those who had the power and influence just turned a blind eye to it. God is clear in the Old Testament and in the New that we are to love our neighbors and to meet the needs of the poor and the afflicted. So we're called to be a compassionate people. We have compassion on others because God has had compassion on us. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. Our love for others is going to naturally flow out of us when we have a right understanding of God's love for us, that he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, even while we were still enemies of him. His love and compassion is going to fuel our love and compassion. So the other verse up there, 1 John three seventeen, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So it'd be good for us to evaluate our own lives and see where we are guilty of this. Whose and what needs are we able to meet? And what needs have we been able to meet that we have failed to do? There's a lot of opportunities, I'm sure, around us, but we need to make sure our eyes are open to them. Make sure that our hearts stay humble and filled with God's compassion. The Israelites were reading about, that we are reading about, ignored this. They ignored the needy. They ignored the poor. They trampled them, it says. So their hearts, based on this verse, their hearts void of the love of God. But even though their actions were void of the love of God, it revealed what was in their hearts, they were still going through the motions of religious ceremonies. So they were acting the part of worshiping, yet still doing these things that showed no compassion and no concern for the other people in the nation. 
They had a false, empty worship, and that is detestable to God. And the second sin that Amos focuses on. So Israel had created for themselves this form of religion. So they kind of created their own way that allowed them to pursue their own sins, but at the same time, trying to maintain the, the blessings that God had promised them. So Amos speaks to this in verse, verses such as 521 to 23, where he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. They loved themselves and their earthly treasures too much to fully surrender to God. So instead, they manipulated the system and went through the motions, practicing their religion, but without any real heart change behind it. They wanted to indulge in their own desires while still receiving the blessings of God. So we need to think, how often, how often do we do the same kind of thing? How often do we go through the motions of church, but then live a life contrary to God's call? God does not desire just our actions. He doesn't want us just to go in and do certain things to make him happy. He wants our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we need to ask ourselves, what reigns supreme in your heart? What reigns supreme? So we can think of things like, where do you go to for hope? Where do you go to when you, you feel like you know, things are tough and I just need this to make me feel better? I just need that to, to help me get me, to get me through these times. So what are the things that we go to that we feel like are bringing us hope? Or the things that we go to that we feel like are going to make us happier or make things better? Because even though a lot of times we come to church and we sing the praises, a lot of times the things that we turn to to try to make us happy or the things that we turn to to try to make us feel better or to give us hope moving forward, a lot of times it's not Christ. A lot of times we start doing the same things and start replacing Christ in our hearts and pursuing idols to fulfill what only God can fulfill. In Amos 4, 4 through 5, God then mocks their empty worship. Come to Bethel and transgress. So he's being sarcastic here. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O Israel, declares the Lord God. So heartlessly, they took money from the poor and then they thanked God for these blessings of wealth that they were getting. When you look at God's statement about their worship in this verse, one of the things that's missing is the sin sacrifice. So God's making a point that they are excusing themselves from their sin, which what they're doing is they're claiming to justify their sins because God is blessing them with this wealth. So what they're doing can't be that bad if God's going to give them the blessings for it and make them prosper. But in the end, is it really, is it, is it really true? In the end, even though life is good, does that mean they're not doing anything wrong? Does it mean that God is pleased with them just because everything is going well? 
And we know, that's no. And it's, it's a hardness of their hearts right now that they would even believe that. Don't make the mistake of thinking prosperity is a sign that your relationship with God is healthy. Our prosperity is not God rewarding us for anything we've done or any goodness that's in us. And that's a lie straight from Satan that he would love for us to believe. Jesus talked about the difficulty of a rich man getting into heaven because he understood the effect of the earthly treasures on the heart. They woo us, they distract us, they give us a false sense of security. Like we have all we need and that our lives are under control, which then can move us into faithlessness and spiritual idleness like we're seeing with the Israelites here. That's what happened to them, and they smugly looked forward to the day of the Lord, thinking their prosperity was only going to increase and that their enemies were going to be put beneath them. So they were an arrogant people who were sitting idly in the covenant promises that God had given them. Because they were his chosen people, they felt entitled to his blessings, regardless of how they lived. But you can't live as your own king and then expect our true king to turn a blind eye to your treason. A good God, a good judge, cannot let these grievous sins go unpunished. And Israel is getting reminded of this fact. The roar of the lion of Judah thunders in the judgments God speaks through Amos. It is absolutely staggering the amount of judgment pronounced on Israel in this book. I counted up a few in general to give you an idea, and then we'll look at one specifically. But a a summary, I counted 10 promises God gave to destroy their house and land, five to humble the mighty, eight to send them into exile, two to destroy their current worship, two more telling them to prepare to meet their God, and then 22 more various forms of judgment that he promised them. So there's a lot of judgment because of, well, because of how serious of what they're doing. I'm going to read through one specific part, though, in Amos 2 through 12, that gives us a, a good idea as to, really, the roar of God here. So I'm going to read through this. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the shaft for wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I'll make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land 
not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So that is some incredibly powerful language that we hear roaring from God. And of the whole thing, the last verse that I have up there, I think is the most frightening of all the judgments. That they, he's going to send a famine of the word of God. Let's think how devastating that is. There's no greater consequence than being separated from God. And this illustrates the reality for us that if we continually harden our hearts to God, that he will eventually give us up to our sinful desires and give us autonomy from him, which is hell. A good quote from C.S. Lewis on this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. It's a severe, it's a severe judgment, but it is a deserved one. As we'd read in the complimentary text at the beginning, when Jesus had been asked the greatest commandments, he listed serving your God and serving others. So the way we love God, the way we love others. And then, as it says at the end of that, all other laws and the prophets all depend on those. And that's exactly what we see in Israel, what they are forsaking right now, is their false worship is showing that they do not love their God. And then their mistreatment of the poor and the needy is showing they do not love their neighbors. Our sin is a rejection of God in the end. And ultimately, that's what we're doing. And it's the most serious of offenses, which requires the most serious of judgments. So Amos tells them in verses 4, 12 to 13, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. And then in 5, 8, 9, he who made Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkness and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. He's telling us, and he's showing us our God is mighty. We are not. God makes certain to put us in our humble place. We have all sinned, as Romans 3, 10, 11 tells us, no one is righteous, no one seeks for God, which means we all deserve his condemnation and are subject to the same judgment that Amos is warning about. So what can we do? And it's a great judgment that he speaks of here. What can we do? And the answer is, ourselves, we can't do anything. And on our own, there is nothing we can do. We need God's grace. And it's through his grace alone that we can be saved. And apart from it, we really do not have a hope. Even just looking through the book of Amos, we're gonna, we see time and time again, God graciously dealt with the Israelites. 
Amos tells them in verses 4, 6 through 11, multiple ways that God tried to humble the Israelites in order to turn them back to him. It says that he sent famine, he sent drought, he sent blight and pestilence, yet Israel would not return to the Lord. And it's interesting when you look at this and just seeing the graciousness of God, he gave them a famine, like, ah, oh, thank you, God. Like he gave them pestilence, and he gave them trials, and, and like, oh, like how often, like, thanks, God, for, for kind of sending all these troubles my way. A lot of times that's not our initial thought, but what we see here and when we truly know God and, and his heart behind it is that these trials are gracious. As he's making the point, I sent you these things to try to bring you back to me, to try to show you that your ways and all that you're trusting in doesn't work. It all fails. It's not everlasting. Come back to me. But they did not. They wouldn't. But we can still have encouragement knowing that in our trials, in the difficult times, that God is being gracious with us. God is going to use our trials. He's going to use these things to help forge our faith in the Lord. It's in the times when we're the most broken that we can see how much we need a Savior. It's when we have nothing that we see that God is everything. There's a quote from Rick Warren that I like that said, you never know God is all you need until God is all you have. I got to see a great example of this with my, my dad's testimony. So with my dad, he, he was not a believer and then when he got cancer, he came to a saving faith through that battle. And he said to me in the midst of it that this cancer is a blessing to, this cancer is a blessing to me because even though it's killing my body, it has saved my soul. What an amazing God that, that even something like cancer, any disease, any trial, anything that comes our way, that we have a God that can use that for good still and can use that in a way that not only strengthens our faith in him, but then uses that and allows others to see him through it. So in our weakness, they can see his strength and can help others see the greatness and amazing God that we have. He will use your trials to build your faith, and he will use them to increase your hope. Unfortunately for the Israelites, they continued to harden their hearts, and they did not return to the Lord. But God still graciously exhorted them to return. In chapter 5, verses 4 to 15, the Lord calls them multiple times to seek him. Seek him and live, and that he will be gracious. So it says a few times, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. Seek what is good, not what is evil, and live. God will be gracious. So that's what we see God doing with them, is still calling them, exhorting them, and telling them, I will be gracious. But they continue to refuse. They continue to reject God despite this call. Their judgment is inevitable. And even though God had called them back and they walked away and refused him, and then even though he tried to bring them back again and they still turned away, even still, even though they keep doing that, God is going to end the book with, a, with hope. The last five verses, God ends with hope, which is so cool that in the end, out of all the sins and all the things that Israel is doing, 
It's not Israel's sins that have the last word. It is God who has the last word because he is victorious over sin and death. So the last five verses from Amos 9, 11 through 15. I have the last two up on the screen. God promises to restore, to rebuild, to replant Israel. They have continuously rejected him, yet he is still making a way for them. And it's not by their own merit or their own deeds, because we've seen they continue to walk away and fail, but it's by God's grace and faithfulness. God called Israel to a high standard. They failed. They turned from him. They deserve his righteous judgment. But in love, God still makes a way for them to return to him and gives them hope despite the error of their ways. And that is the outline of the gospel of Jesus Christ for us. Despite our wanderings from God, we can be saved from the judgment we deserve. By trusting in Jesus Christ, who bore the judgment of our sins on the cross, then rose from death in victory. He faced the incredible roaring judgment on our behalf so that we don't have to, and instead receive his righteous reward, eternity in heaven with our creator. The cross is where justice and mercy meet. So that judgment we read about is taken care of, but God's mercy still shows through. They meet on the cross. Our Lord, the Lion of Judah, is roaring in this book, warning us of the coming judgment. This is an eternal life or death situation. And when I think of life or death, I think of adrenaline. I'm a science teacher. They have adrenaline and the fight or flight response. So here, with an eternal life or death situation, our fight or flight response should kick in where we are fighting against our sin and we are in flight towards Christ. Do not take the Bible and the word of God for granted. Do not take your sin lightly. Do not let the noises of this world drown out the roar of the Lord in your life. Hear it and heed his call. Repent of your sins, follow Jesus, so when the Lord roars on the final day of judgment, you will be protected by the blood of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are a just and gracious God. You are just, which is so good because we know that you care about what is right. You care about those in need. You care. You care. You are a compassionate God, Father, and we thank you for that, and thank you that you are at the same time gracious to us, that even though we don't, we don't do what you called us to do, that we often wander away, that we often turn to other false gods and false worships, but yet you still draw us back to you, and it is never too, too far for, for, for us to come back, Father. You are so good, and we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.